and welcome to Serenity in Leadership's series on leading responsibly with integrity and purpose, a series dedicated to conversations with people who are shining examples of this kind of leadership. I'm Tom Dennis, the CEO of Serenity in Leadership, and today I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Sridevi Kalidindi, CBE. She's a consultant psychiatrist, chair of the Association of Mental Health Providers, and previously worked as the Associate Medical Director at the South London and Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust. She's the National Clinical Lead for Mental Health Rehabilitation for Getting It Right First Time, an NHS England and Improvement Programme. And she was awarded the CBE in 2019 for services to rehabilitation psychiatry. She is a leadership, executive and life coach. She's an entrepreneur and founder of Clip Global, Clip, that's key life indicator plan. Uh, and so I'm fascinated to hear where we go with this, uh, Sri. Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much, Tom, and thank you for inviting me. Great to speak with you as ever. <laughs> so, Sri, I'm curious, and I think perhaps um, our viewers and listeners might be as well. What made you become a psychiatrist? So that's a really good question. So I didn't plan to become a psychiatrist when I started off in medicine. I always thought I wanted to be a doctor. And uh, once I'd come into uh, medicine, I actually started off as uh, a medical trainee. And pretty early on, I realised that uh, as I was you know, busily going to see patients on the wards as a junior doctor and uh, doing the things I needed to do, writing in the notes. In those days, we used to write in the notes, not type in the notes. <laughs> and um, then I'd sort of try to dash off and see my next patient. And of course, the patient wanted to talk, their families wanted to talk, to speak, to ask questions and know more about what's happening. And I could find myself getting anxious because I was thinking, gosh, I've got to get I've got to get through all this work and you know get home and those were the days where um even a regular day you know you'd easily be going home seven eight nine sometimes when the when the wards were busy and I came to the realization this is really not what I came into medicine for I want to really help build that you know rapport with people have a therapeutic relationship and get to know them in a more holistic way so I can support them so I thought, okay, what else is there out there that I could try? Um, I went into psychiatry, not really fully understanding, I think, um, but hoping that it might be a specialty for me. And luckily it was. I absolutely have loved it, um, that sort of being able to really get to know somebody well and support them back to you know, good health or as, as well as we can get them and living lives that they want to live as much as possible. Mm. Um, we get to work with a fantastic multidisciplinary team uh, and we all work together to support individuals and their families really to, to, to get to a much better place. Um, so I'm really fortunate and I get to um, really build that trust and it is that trusting relationship, and particularly in psychiatry, you know, yes, we have medication and we have therapy and so on, but so much of what we do is through that therapeutic relationship in psychiatry, and so it's a real privilege to 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 be able to do that. Mm. Yes, I'm a I'm a I'm a great admirer of people who contribute so much in in a in an organisation that is so fraught in so many ways. 
Um, and perhaps we'll touch on that. I don't know. But you, you're the founder and CEO of Clip Global, Global which is a, a workforce well-being and development service where you provide employees with personalized, holistic, science-backed plans so they can lead healthier, fulfilled lives. It sounds incredible, but how do you go about fulfilling that brief? Mm. So really what we try and do in CLIP is think about it in three ways. So really, wherever possible, we want to work preventatively and uh, you know, really skill people up and support them to uh, avoid becoming unwell in different ways. And then we also work in a very restorative way, picking up issues early and then getting people back on track with, with the services that we provide or if people are very severe or very um, acute in their condition in crisis, then we would also refer them on. And then we also have the transformative element, which is where the coaching comes in and getting people to their next levels. And the way that we do that, uh, it's a, the workforce wellbeing and development, is through an app. And we also have a live service so people can, through the app, go through all of the assessments, the goal setting, the um, all the different elements that are on there and also be able to directly go and book into our live sessions as well. Um, so we've had some really fantastic successes with that uh, and uh, we want to support more people. Mm. And so are you... Um... I guess you're 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 playing with uh, perhaps that's the wrong word, but using AI now and and developing that. If you're using an app, how, how do you see that developing with AI? I think we can't. I can't even see into the future enough to say exactly how it would develop. But certainly for now, uh, the AI, when we have enough data, we can be uh, give people clearer support around. Okay, what is it? given your profile that's going to help you most at this point in time and show people that sort of content, guide them to those rele relevant live sessions um, and use it in that way. Um, yeah. And in the future, I think there are many other things that we can do as well about you know really supporting behaviour change using AI, um, thinking about how we um, you know, perhaps even have... Um, you know, using AR, using VR in this space as well, um, backed up by AI. So there's many things I think we can do that, and many of them we don't even know really yet. Yeah, I think that's the fascinating bit about it, because <laughs> I think it's it's a Jekyll and Hyde um, uh, phenomenon. So uh, I think people who are using it in the best possible way. Uh, that's fantastic. So um, I think it's something like one in four people in the UK live with mental health problems and almost 88% of people struggling with mental illness don't seek help for their problems. Do you think that mental health is uh, the, the new pandemic? I think mental health has always been uh, underestimated in terms of how many people require support and there's been well there still is you know stigma and discrimination and so even when people can feel that there's something not quite right they they don't come forward they don't come forward in a timely way and of course what happens is people can get worse then as a result of that um, and then they come when they're much further down the line and it's actually harder to 
support them with treatment and so on to you know get back to their uh, their previous levels of functioning and so on so I think it's always been there I think that um, it has definitely got worse through COVID uh, and I think what's changed is that people recognize the mm-hmm. uh, of mental health much more and they're more willing to come forward and speak about it and seek help, which is all good. Of course, then we have to have the services there in order to provide that uh, care and treatment that they need. Um, and I think that you know our NHS services are a little bit overwhelmed at the moment with the level of need. Uh, and obviously, it's a mismatch with the level of resourcing. Um, but of course, that's where things like you know, CLIP come in and where employers can help and support their employees so that they can, you know, one, avoid becoming unwell, but also that some, you know, with those kind of more mild to moderate situations or cases, they can also get back on track through other services like ours. Um, uh, so it's really great, I think, that people are recognising, particularly, you know, employers mm. are stepping into that breach and they understand the bottom line of when their employees are off sick, how that impacts uh, their business. It's the right thing to do, obviously, to support employee well-being and development, but also um, it, it absolutely has a positive impact on businesses' bottom lines and the culture that they create too. And that then leads to them being able to uh, both recruit and retain that really top talent. Mm. So do you think really that that there's an increasing number of leaders who are beginning to genuinely care more about their employees and see why that is so important to the business for the the uh, preventing people from being off sick for 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 things that you can't necessarily see um they don't manifest in the same way as someone breaking a, a leg and that do, do you think that the leaders really are Um, caring more now? I think it's variable, but I'd like to think so, Tom, that uh, leaders really do understand that need for that holistic care, which includes um, mental well-being as well as physical well-being. And some of the other factors that we talked about in terms of the key life indicator plan that we cover, you know, it's relationships, it's community, it's career, meaning, finance, as well as the mental and physical health. So it's recognising that all of those elements do contribute to uh, people's well-being. Can you can you say a little bit more about the key life indicators, what, what they are and um, how, how we're sort of monitoring and keeping a, a closer look mm-hmm. on them? So the key life indicators, uh, we have seven in total, and they're very holistic when put together. So we have mental health, physical health, we have uh, relationships and communities, and also career meaning and finance. And so um, what happens, people go on, they assess how they're doing in all these areas, and then there's an opportunity to um, do something positive about that and take the relevant action and get the right kind of support that's evidence-based to improve in any one of those areas. Hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of this, uh, you know, this, this, this interview is sort of in the, the context of uh, what we call leading responsibly with integrity and, and purpose. 
And you say, you know, you, you'd like to think that there are more leaders um, taking the, the right action. What, what do you think we need to do to, to persuade those that perhaps don't really see the, the, um, the need for this, in spite of the fact that, you know, the, 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 the stats as far as uh, the bottom line are concerned are pretty, pretty persuasive, but um, it, it seems there's a lot of, of, of leaders who, who still don't want to really engage with that. So how, how could we persuade them to, to be more, more involved and, and take a, a, a greater level of responsibility? Mm. Well, I think there are several ways, and I don't think there's one way that's going to cover it all. So uh, one is data. When we measure certain factors, so when we look at the well-being of staff and different rates of you know, sickness and so on and what they're off sick with, uh, and when we look at their kind of development and progress as well through the organisation, um, we can see you know, how staff are being developed and we can also see uh, and compare and benchmark across organisations how many people are you know, off sick um, with different conditions and so on. And that data can be very powerful. And in fact, it sort of ties into some of my national works. So that's what I do at a national level for mental health rehabilitation. And um, people don't, people want to do well. Uh, they want to bring up their numbers and uh, be performing well. And the beauty of something like that, like looking at the data and benchmarking is that people can learn from one another, you know, what's working well in one organisation, how can um, others learn to improve, you know, the well-being of their staff using some of those same kind of methods and techniques. Um, so I think that's definitely one way. Uh, and of course, people don't want to be at the bottom, do they? So, you know, they, they will think about, okay, how can we fix some of this? The other element is that um, the more, so I'm a big, big, big believer in coaching, you know, Tom, as I know that you are as well. And when we coach senior leaders, and they can do that inner work and they can see, you know, the impact that they are having and they want to have in their organisation and more widely, then I think, those leaders do become more aware of their kind of social responsibility and that compassion towards their staff and the kind of wider society. So I think that's another way uh, that we can support people to get on board. And the other way, of course, is setting kind of national policy and national targets and national guidelines. And certainly there are some countries around the globe that are doing exactly that. Um, and I think it is that element. We bring all of these together. Um, so that you can affect that change over time. And of course, I mean, lastly, people will vote with their feet. And I know that the generations coming up now, they very much look at what the wellbeing offer is and the development offer is from their employers. And they will choose that sometimes, and the evidence shows, over a higher pay package. Yeah. So when we know that, then uh, organisations who don't heed that and don't act will be the organisations that miss out, and will be get they'll get left behind. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Do um, 
do CEOs uh, uh, find it a bit scary to to sort of enter uh, with an organization which which is sort of led by a psychiatrist? Uh, I've not found that. And obviously, I have a team around me as well. So we have lots of different <laughs> skill sets and so on all covered off and, and capabilities. So um, I have not found that. I've, in fact, found that people are very welcoming of it because what we find a lot in this uh, area, Tom, is that because it's really unregulated at the moment, you know, sort of well-being space, uh, so having somebody who has that background, as a you know, professional, who's expert in this area, um, who also has that very sort of key ethical standpoint um, and, and comes from a, a, a field that is heavily regulated mm. and brings that expertise and um, standing into the product and the service, I think is really reassuring for lots of people. Right. And you you may have seen it, but um, I had an exchange um, interview with uh, Anita Novak a little while ago, and she, I call her the Empathy Queen. She's um, she she has a, a weekly podcast about empathy, and um, I, I so we we talk quite a lot about empathy now. And uh, um, how, how important do you think? being empathetic is now for for people well people in in positions of responsibility hmm. being empathic is hugely important i think what we are geared up to uh, notice difference and to fear it and that comes from our kind of ancient uh, you know, thousands of years old mechanisms to keep us safe. Yeah. If we saw people coming from another tribe or community, we didn't know if they were safe or they were going to come and try and steal our uh, reserves or whatever. And so that is the first thing that when we see difference or when we see perhaps somebody um, who's not operating in the same way as we are or the same level we are so that we identify that and i think that we we do get alerted you know, through our kind of primitive brain our amygdala and so on so actually to be empathic and to be compassionate and kind it means that people have to go to a higher level of functioning yeah. they have to overcome that fear mm. and that's a primal network uh, neural network and so empathy is definitely something that people who are more developed generally have more of, I um, would say. Yes. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> and in terms of the importance of empathy in the world today, we, see, we can see very clearly what happens when we don't have empathy, um, that we don't value people we don't value uh you know the other living things around us and all the damage that that does yes and the flip side when people are empathic just how empowering that can be for the people around them um and that care not just to people but the wider planet as well yeah uh, is incredibly impactful yeah i think it's it's been fascinating looking at um 
some of the decisions that have been made made as a result of AI. Because, uh, for instance, BT uh, have announced laying off fifty five thousand people between now and the uh, um, twenty thirty, and they say ten thousand of them are going to be um, customer facing. And one of the things, the stats they've come up with, um, actually, I think it was Octopus Energy that that came up with the stat, saying that. Um, about 85% of people find uh, um, AI more empathic than the human um, beings on the end of a phone. And I think that that's a that's a real sort of wake up call for us because we're so busy, that actually, it's quite, I think it's one of the, the, the first things it's quite easy to lose is that willingness to be present with someone and actually um, be empathic. Have, have you heard, sort of come across that at all? I don't know. Yes, I had come across that. And then I read more about it. And um, it was a very specific sample that yeah. is, you can't really generalize that uh, across other samples. So I would um, really take that with a pinch of salt or with caution. Um, yeah. that's great I, you, yeah. you you were the data <laughs> yeah 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 sorry did you want to say more on that <laughs> no no i don't think that that's that's it from for that piece yeah <laughs> so um we, we've we've talked about empathy and and that that sense of belonging you know when you're in your own tribe i um i really feel that uh, people more than ever want to feel part of something to to feel like they belong to a community including at work so do you see that in your work too and is hybrid working uh, detrimental to that Connection, human connection is so key. Uh, and when you look at all the studies that show when people are happier and live longer, uh, that you know, close com confidence, friendships, the social connections are right at the heart of uh, those improvements for people and the people who are uh, happiest and who live longest. So in terms of when we think about hybrid working, I think that it can be really a good thing. And if it's thought about, it doesn't have to be detrimental to that feeling of community. Mm. In fact, it can help because if people are more able to be working at home for some of the time, so taking out their commuting time, that can be can repurposed. Perhaps they're less tired. Um, less stress, they're more able to get on with things during the day that they need to do that, you know, that, that are more um, uh, household type things as well. All of these things, I think, can help to live a more balanced life. Um, and that includes having more time to connect with others. Maybe there's more connection locally. Mm. Um, but also even at work, there are ways to make sure that people stay connected. You know, people going all teams going in on the same day every week, for example. So they do have that face-to-face -face time as well. Um, people uh, being able to book in times where they just have a coffee together 
or work together online. Certainly I've done that and I find that really useful. Um, so you'll still feel like you're working with your team, although you're all sitting quietly working on your own stuff, but you can have those conversations in between. So it doesn't have to be. I think if you're working solely at home, though, um, that might have some detrimental impact. And it really is about, uh, again, being considerate of how am I going to make sure that that connection and that sort of feeling uh, of, of um, uh, having people around and that community, how am I going to get that mm. if I'm not from work? Yeah. I, I I noticed that um, there are some um, leaders, some uh, in organisations, who really want to get everybody back in the office. Um, whereas the, for the the people lower down the, the the food chain, so to speak, they all want to be able to have the hybrid working um, for all the um, advantages that you've described. Mm. What do you think it is that's making people r resist the, the hybrid working as a model? I think there are some leaders who worry that their teams are not as productive, and there may be some truth in that. Um, others feel that their teams are productive and perhaps more productive at times. So I don't. I, I think it's important for people to have the data to make these decisions from rather than just the feeling of what they want to happen. There's been lots and lots written about this and some of the data coming out that it's harder on, you know, women who may have more of the other responsibilities to be coming in every day. Uh, and a lot of women have been voting with their feet and leaving the workplace as a result of where well, they have been asked to go back into the workplace. So, <clears throat> it's easy for the people who are able to who did well going into the office every, every day that's what they want to get back to mm. I, I love that you come back to the data because that, that's the bit that you can't really argue with <laughs> and it sort of overrides people's beliefs and uh, uh, about things also it's important to uh, learn from individual narratives as well because that's when you can really see how things impact positively or negatively both in terms of the individual and for the organization uh, and so the learning has to be hand in hand both the data and the sort of the the, the um, I guess the qualitative data as well and mm. that is experiential data yeah so do you ever help organizations with that um, I guess a, a lot, well, for most organizations, they're monitoring, they're measuring, they've got goals and so on. So um, I, I guess this is, this is, this is uh, another area that it's worth uh, monitoring and, 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 and storing data. And that's probably data they haven't monitored before. Is that, is that your experience? Yeah, they've not had to monitor it before. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I remember working with a bank um, before, quite a long time before the pandemic, uh, and they were, they were um, reducing their office space to, to reduce overheads. Uh, 
and uh, there was a there was a lot of panic going on in managers, just saying, well, if people work from home, they're not going to do any work. Um, you know, they're going to be out, they're going to the dentist, taking the dog for a walk, looking after the children. We're not going to get any work done at all. And I did reflect that it seemed to me that an awful lot of that was actually, if I'm if I'm a manager and I've got some people around me, I can monitor them and control them and, and so on. But if they're not here, then what is my function? Um, and, and I think for some people, actually tying their identity up with their job um, there was a real threat of of losing a sense of their identity. Who who am I if I don't manage and control people? Yes, it speaks to different types of leadership. It, it speaks to the, I guess, the older version of leadership as I see it, which is much more that um, pace setting leader. Uh, you know, the hero leader, as opposed to more the servant leader that is developing their staff and enabling their staff and coaching their staff. So, of course, if you have the uh, first styles, those first styles, then you need to have people in the office more in order to uh serve those serve those functions really in terms of you know, checking um, telling monitoring whereas if you've got more of a coaching empowering servant type leadership then of course <clears throat> you're really enabling people to do good work you know wherever they are you don't have to be there constantly sort of checking uh, on what's actually happening. So do you see that style of leadership um, emerging more today? Not as much as it needs to. Mm. Mm. How, can we, how can we encourage that, bring it out more? I think there's leading by example. There is coaching. Uh, in our work to support leaders to move to that more uh, kind of modern style of leadership, I would say, or more fit for purpose currently in our current environment. Mm. Um, I think that where we have leadership programs in all sorts of settings, that there is an understanding of the need for that shift as well. Mm. Yeah. And certainly NHS, where we've had um, pace-setting leaders and uh, what can happen is that people are so focused on reaching the targets because they're being pushed to reach those that quality of care and even safety sometimes can suffer. And we've seen that time and again in the NHS. Yes. Well, we've heard quite a lot about that in the news, haven't we? <laughs> yeah. It's very tragic. Yeah, I, I think the way that we we train people in technical um, specializations, it's quite easy uh, to lose sight of the, the human aspects. It's extraordinary, really, even when we're relating to to people. 
Um, yeah. You know, you, you talk about, you, you hear some doctors and their, their bedside manners and, and, you know, it's, I, I, I can understand it at a level, you know, when, when doctors are so incredibly busy and they, they, they've just, so many of them want to be able to have a better connection with their patient and yet time dictates that they've got to move on to the next one and and there's this person who's in the hospital for the first time and it's all strange and it's incredibly frightening and you've got someone who's so used to that environment it, it there's such a dissonance there it, it must oh, it's it's so difficult so difficult and if if only we can have more time um i think we've got to create the more time and also actually i think perhaps the 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 skill of presence being even if you're with someone momentarily just being entirely with them in those moments can make such a such a difference and we get back to that sense of empathy you know that that connection that mm. can, i mean do you agree i i I'm, it, it feels i do like agree so i do agree tom and it doesn't take anything to be kind um well it does because you have to replenish so as a doctor you know we have to replenish ourselves in order to be able to keep giving and to keep being kind and compassionate and that's also why i'm doing the work that i'm doing uh, with clip is supporting people in the nhs and social care and also in charities <clears throat> who often keep giving and giving and giving until they burn out or yeah. you know they, they develop other conditions and so on. So very much about um, the phrase I use is uh, pouring from an overflowing cup as mm. much as we possibly can. Maybe we can't do it all the time, but to keep on you know, making sure that our own resources are topped up so that we can pour from that overflow of additional compassion, kindness, you know, resource, energy, <coughs> rather than you know keeping on pouring and getting to the very bottom and then and then collapsing because that doesn't really do the individual any favors or if you think about it, it's just not sustainable um and they can't do all those other things for all those other people that they actually really want to do yeah yeah so Sri, um sort of getting to the, the the end of this running out of time so just to round things up can you give us um say three tips on how leaders can improve how they help employees with their with their mental health yeah absolutely so in terms of uh, how leaders can improve and help their employees with their mental health i think number one is be the change lead by example show people as a leader how you look after your own mental health and how you take those breaks, how you spend time outside of work, you know, with loved ones, on things that you enjoy outside of work, and you know, getting enough sleep, eating well, all those things that we know are linked to good mental health. Be that change, be that example that others can follow. And we all know that far too often leaders do the opposite because they're too busy, you know, because mm. they've got so on in fact by putting into place some of those systems to care for themselves and keep themselves mentally well their productivity their um, ability to sustainably do good work 
really, really increases. The second is to ensure that they provide a good, comprehensive mental health well-being uh, and development offer. And it needs to be arranged because it's not a one-size-fits-all. People are different. They engage differently with well-being offers, so make sure that there's enough of a range that meets the different needs of different of your staff. That's really important. So listen, um, make sure you're measuring what's going on with your well-being service and iterate and improve and tweak so it really does meet the needs of your staff. And um, the third would be to train up uh, line managers because we know that uh, line managers have a huge impact on the mental health of their staff. Mm. Um, and so when we train up line managers uh, to understand mental health, to understand how to keep people mentally healthy and not actually you know, make them worse uh, to the point where they're off stressed and off sick, uh, that is a really key area that we can intervene and do something positively about. The evidence is there for that. Mm. Yes. The last thing to say, actually, it sort of touches on some of the things we were talking about earlier, uh, Tom, is that you know we often talk about soft skills, don't we? Of you know the empathy, the um, you know other kind of communication skills, conflict management, all those things. I mean, I call those power skills yes. because it's. People who have those skills that are the ones that can lead organizations well and can have the biggest impact. So, for and the people who have power skills are the ones that can work best in teams and uh, you know provide the results that they want to and that their organizations want them to provide. And in something like the NHS, it's crucial those power skills when they are there. Patient care improves, staff morale improves, all of those things. And when those skills are not there, things can go really badly wrong. Mm. Well, hallelujah. And thank you for um, finding another term for soft skills. I think in so many organizations, uh, uh, soft skills is dismissed as the thing that you can get rid of. And it's the the training that you can um, dispose of the the most easily. And um, I'm completely with you. That um, you know, I I I often say organizations thrive when people thrive, and people thrive when they feel psychologically safe, and those that that environment comes from all those power skills. That's what creates that. So thank you. Let's let's hope that everybody adopts that and does away yeah. with this soft skills and talks about power skills. It's great. Well, we. We can use it, can't we, Tom? Absolutely. Absolutely. Be the change. Be the change. <laughs> That's what Gandhi said, isn't it? So, <laughs> Shri, thank you so very much. This has been fascinating. And, and uh, I, I really hope it's actually educational um, for a lot of the people who, who watch this. Um, we, uh, we ignore mental health at our peril. It is so important. And thank you for all the work that you are doing, which is uh, just making a difference in so many different ways. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, Tom. Thank you for 
having me on your podcast. It's been an absolute delight as ever to speak to you and speaking about things that are really close to my heart. So I hope it's useful for people. And uh, thanks again and take care and hope to see you very soon. Yes, thanks. Bye-bye.